0: When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got through the American election this week, we've enjoyed another bonfire night, which was pretty noisy in my neck of the woods, and we've entered yet another nationwide lockdown. Can 2020 get any more strange? There's only about eight weeks left of it now, thankfully. Today, we will take stock of where we are in the world, what you're going to be doing this weekend, and what could possibly go wrong. And we're kicking off with this question. Just how many different ways are there of saying the word wrong? How many times do you have to be wrong before you get fired from a job that requires you to be right? How much should you be allowed to mislead people before you lose all your credibility? And what do you have to do to make your bosses lose all confidence in your judgment? I'm not talking about Joe Biden. I'm not referring to Boris Johnson. I am, of course, talking about the Brothers Grimm, the Masters of Disaster, the Gruesome Twosome, Messrs. Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Vallance. Things got so bad yesterday that the Prime Minister ditched them all together in favour of the head of NHS England, Sir Simon Stevens, for the press briefing in the afternoon this was after the UK statistics authority said this the use of data has not consistently been supported by transparent information being provided in a timely manner in other words they've been peddling a load of old cobblers and the government has swallowed it hook line and sinker. We'll talk to John Rental from The See if we'll get him to agree. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we are checking in on the latest from the US election count, where if they got any slower, they would probably be registered as dead. We are told there might well be a declared winner today, but then they said that yesterday as well. And this is gonna rumble on for quite some time, I kid you not. 0344 499 1000. Today, I want you to do your own forecasting of things as well. Things that might happen this weekend. Here's mine. I'm going out to buy six bottles of wine this afternoon. If I keep buying six bottles of wine, Every hour from 2pm until 8pm, I'll need to buy, uh, hire a van to get them home, won't I? You've already heard my t- uh, deal about driving 50 miles. If I keep driving 50 miles uh, every hour in 24 hours, I'll be in Andorra. These are the kind of predictions, which are not predictions, mind you, just scenarios uh, that the Messers, gr- witty and valence are actually making. Unbelievable. So we want to hear your suggestions for what you're going to forecast, for what's going to happen and what you're going to be doing this weekend. You can text me at 87222. You can tweet me at talkradio, at I-R-O-M-G. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Is it any wonder this is Talk Radio? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it has been quite a week, right? We've had the excitement of the election special that we did on Tuesday night into Wednesday morning, in which I correctly, and only me, by the way, only I correctly predicted that Donald Trump would declare victory at some point uh, in the middle of the night before I came back to do another show at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, when I was a little bit tired. But uh, it managed to uh, to go on without any major problems whatsoever. So I thought what we need today is the soothing calm of a man uh, who's seen it all before. And we couldn't find anyone like that. So we got John Rental instead from the Independent. John, a very good morning. <laughs> good morning, Mike. Thank <laughs> you for that introduction. Not at all. Um, not at all. Very nice to see you. Actually, in all seriousness, we did think it was time for, for your uh, your measured analysis of the week, because it's not just the American election. I'll tell you my first question. Have the television companies in this country gone completely barking mad? I mean, I was watching Sky yesterday afternoon and they were sort of analysing... Uh, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, and what they had voted like for the last sort of 20 elections. And I'm going, actually, people aren't that interested in the American election. What the hell are you doing? (laughs) Well, as you say,
2: it's going so slowly, they might as well be dead. Um, But I mean, we had this before. I mean, I remember four years ago, uh, you know, it came as quite a shock to many of us British people, Mm. how long it took to count those votes in California. Right. Uh, and it didn't matter because we knew the result. I mean, Hillary Clinton had actually conceded defeat at uh, 1.30 a.m. Right. on election night. But what was very important was, was the popular vote picture because mm. we just, being, uh, being liberal lefties, we just wanted to, to know how much Hillary Clinton had, had really won by. Um, and, of course, it took weeks for California to actually deliver anything like a final figure. Yes. So, you know, this, this could this could drag on um this this biden uh trump uh battle yes. because you know even, oh, I, even
3: if,
2: I mean they've already declared that arizona is for for, for biden and yeah. yet it seems like they might have to undeclare it now right. and then uh, and then we will still be weeks away from
1: a result well that's the thing i mean people keep saying to me oh uh, has arizona declared and i said well to be honest i'm not actually sure because we were told uh on i think uh, the early hours of wednesday morning that Fox News had already basically declared it for, um, uh, for Biden, which upset the Trump camp uh, no end. Um, and they're still fighting Fox News as a result of that. And, Tr- and Trump's got so yeah. angry that he's thinking he's setting up his own network now, if he doesn't win, to, to take them on. But, you know, the thing I find also rather interestingly ironic is that all of the Biden-supporting lefty Ramonas in this country are saying, why doesn't Trump just accept the result and move on? <laughs> and you go, well, um, that just reminds me of something. I can't think what. <laughs> well, well it, it reminds you
2: you know where have they been for the past four years i mean that's just not how donald trump behaves I mean, well donald it's not Trump's how they
1: behave either they haven't still haven't accepted brexit i mean that's what that was my point
2: well I, no i think they accept what well, okay there was there was, there, was, there is a minority of uh, conspiracy theorists who think that the the, elec- the referendum was rigged but i mean i think i think the majority uh, accepted that was a the result they just didn't like it and they they tried to have a second referendum yeah, that's uh, what terrific. I mean.
1: But I mean, what I'm saying is, there, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think this was going to turn into a row, John. I just was making the point that they were sort of, you know, uh, rather uh, misconceiving their own position and, and pointing out that uh, people should move on when they hadn't yet really properly moved on because they're still tweeting about it and how awful it's going to be.
2: Fair enough. But I mean, Donald Trump's behaviour is absolutely disgraceful. I mean, the ridiculous assertion of... Uh, well, unless of it voting. turns out
1: he's right, and, of course, I mean, which we don't know. So whether whether or not his behaviour is disgraceful, surely can only be judged at the end when you find out whether he was right or not.
2: Well, no, but he has to have some evidence for suggesting that there's been voter fraud. And he's, he has absolutely none. So uh, it, it's, it's been an astonishingly
1: graceless and... Uh, well, we haven't <laughs> seen him produce any evidence. doesn't mean he doesn't have it. He may have given it to the authorities. We don't know. Might. But let's no perfect doesn't have it. Well, you say that, but you've been wrong before, John. Let's move on to Messrs. No, Valance and Witty. He it, wouldn't he? Well, well, well be- he may well have done. I don't know whether he has or not. That's the point. Let's talk about Witty and Valance, because I've been arguing with you for some time about how this data that they keep producing has been dodgy. It now turns yeah. out that the UK statistical authority agrees with me. Yeah,
2: no. Well, I mean, I think everyone accepts, and 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 Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance uh, virtually accepted it in front of that select committee. Yeah, week, that they shouldn't really have shown that uh, that scenario graph, uh, suggesting that
1: deaths might go up to four thousand a day by Christmas. Um, but yeah, that is my thing. That, I mean, when you say they shouldn't really have done it, I mean, these are the people on whom all of this policy has been based. This is the information on which all of this policy uh, no, has been no, rolled no, out. Not. No, it's not
2: actually. I mean, as as Chris Whitty uh, explained to the select committee, uh, the real um, uh, important data is, is is the data from hospitals about uh, about the NHS re- coming close to being overwhelmed in the next in, few in, weeks.
1: In some in some hospitals, not in all, especially not in no. the ones that they didn't show that didn't have any COVID patients.
2: Yes, no, I mean, ab- absolutely. But I mean that's why they, I mean, as you say. That's why they got Simon Stevens on uh, to do the news conference yesterday. And he was very, uh, uh, you know, I thought he was a very effective and clear performer. He said there are 11,000 patients with coronavirus in hospitals. He didn't say, incidentally, how many of them had actually caught it in hospital. But that's not, not really relevant. I mean, the, there are 11,000. Uh, well, it kind of is, income. though,
1: because it is relevant on the basis that if you go into hospital and you don't have COVID and then you get COVID as a result of being in hospital, then you haven't got into hospital as a result of COVID. So therefore, the number would be reduced, wouldn't it?
2: Well, that is, that is true. But it's still a number that, uh, that that the hospitals have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, and that's
1: it, a bit yeah. like what I was just saying to, uh, to Julia Hartley Brewer. You know, if I drive 50 miles today and I keep going uh, 50 miles every day, You know, in 24 days, I'll be in Andorra. You know, doesn't mean it's going to happen, does it?
2: Well, no, but, uh, you know, unless you could suggest reasons why the spread of coronavirus is going to is is going to stop or reverse, then it will the the numbers of uh, patients will continue to go up. Well, let's put it this way.
1: You've got a much bigger chance of getting coronavirus (laughs) in hospital than you have down the dog and duck. Yes, but there, you
2: also have a chance of getting it down the dog and duck, and that—that that is. Yeah, you know, I didn't say you won't get spread. it
1: there, but you've got a much better chance of getting it in hospital.
2: Yes, but the, it's the spread outside hospital that that, that they're worried about. And I know, but maybe
1: they should be more worried about the spread inside the hospital. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, of course they should. They should be worried about that, but that does not mean that their argument for uh, for the for the lockdown is uh, is is completely specious.
1: No, it's not completely specious, but it is. Partially specious, I would say, specifically in places where there's not very much coronavirus outbreak. For example, the Isle of Wight, where poor old Jeremy Corbyn has run off to to escape the, uh, the glamour and the glitz of politics. I was there just last week for half term and they have no cases at all. Right. But they've right. Had to sh- but, the, but the pub that I was in, the spyglass in, in Ventnor, is having to shut down. Yeah. I mean, I, su-
2: I suspect that the, 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 the national lockdown is... It is an overreaction, and uh, there isn't sufficient evidence that it'll it'll work. Although, you know, there wasn't enough evidence that the tiered system uh, was turning the uh, turning the tide. I mean, there's some evidence that it w- it was turning the tide, and it may turn out that, uh, you know, once again, the government has overreacted too late. But. Mm. Uh, well, there's we another, have... the, other,
1: the other strange thing, John, I don't know what you've noticed in the last couple of days, but when I came into work yesterday, sort of day one of the lockdown, I saw all the same school children standing at all the same bus stops. I saw the same traffic jams that I saw on Tuesday. I saw the same number of people walking around uh, as I walked from the, the multi-story car park where I parked my car into work. There were no fewer yep. people on the trains. I mean, it's a strange looking lockdown to me, this. It is.
2: It's, it is a. Uh, it is a much lighter lockdown than uh, than the one in March, uh, which I think is a good thing because I don't think they should have shut the schools in uh, in, in March and April.
1: Yeah, uh, I and, think I think uh, that's become clear, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, but but I, I do accept that there is a case for further restrictions beyond what they'd already imposed, uh, because I don't think you can argue uh, with the with the hospital. Uh, figures, um, yet I mean maybe maybe they will turn out to have been uh, be, been worrying uh, unnecessarily, but I mean that that graph that Simon Stevens showed yesterday was uh, you know was a genuine increase. I mean what he didn't show of course was the, was the actual capacity of the NHS, the number of beds that, it, that they've got. Mm. but it, clearly you know th- those those coronavirus cases are heading you know quite steeply in the wrong direction.
1: Yes, no, I think that's true. However, the trouble is, and I think you'll agree with me on this, that what the UK Statistical Authority have basically said is that because of the way that the statistics have been presented, they have not really taken the country with them because what they've created is a lack of trust. um, And what they've created is the the sense and the perception that the the, 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 the data is being manipulated. And I'm afraid that would appear to be the case.
2: I I think that is absolutely right, Mike. I mean, I think that is a problem. Uh, because no sooner had they had they shown that graph of the 4,000 deaths a day by Christmas, uh, than people started taking it apart and saying, "What are the assumptions on which this is based?" Uh, and discovering, of course, that it was based on on data from several weeks previously. So, you know, that was that was a bad mistake because it undermines uh, people's faith in, uh, in in the sort of witty valence show. Uh, and it's very important that people actually understand them because, you know, I mean. You've got to remember that somebody like Steve Baker went into number 10 with his own sort of preferred uh, data crunchers uh, in order to try and challenge uh, the government's advisers and, and their and, and their figures. And he came out rather, rather sort of uh, smashed in the face saying, uh, well, actually, you know, I think the government's got a good a good argument. I mean, he ended up voting against the, the lockdown restrictions in the end. Uh, but he wasn't able to uh, to challenge the government's figures once he got in there and, mm. and, and, and argued with them face to face.
1: But the difficulty as well is, that it's a, uh, you know, the government advisers are supposedly there to present a series of scenarios rather than a consensus that they've come to, uh, which is their one argument. And once you present, as, uh, as David Davis said today to Julie Hartley Brewer, once you present a piece of paper that says to Boris Johnson, we could have 4000 people dying every single day, you're not really giving him much choice, are you?
2: No, but that wasn't, as I said, that wasn't the decisive number. And Chris Whitty insists that he wasn't making the argument on the basis of those of those scenarios. He was making the argument on the much more, uh, much more limited and secure figures about what's happening in hospitals and that, you know. You, yeah, but he didn't say it. that
1: to us. That's the problem. He didn't say it to the public. And he presented I, that figure as if it was happening.
2: No, no, you you're, no. They they presented that figure briefly as a scenario of what might happen.
1: Yeah, and they didn't say it might happen. No, they said if we do nothing, this will happen. That's what they said.
2: No, they didn't. They said there are a range of there are a range of scenarios. They're all different. And they showed they showed that graph with a with a number of different curves on it. Uh, well, I'm and, looking at but, the
1: graph now. I mean, you might as well have said in that case, yeah, you could have 50,000 deaths a day, but that's not real either. I mean, that's not how they presented it, John. And you know that they have presented it wrong (laughs) and they have presented it incorrectly. And quite frankly, I'm struggling to not say that they were trying to mislead the public.
2: No, I don't. I don't think they were. I think they were trying to illustrate what happens with exponential growth. Well, well, they've
1: also admitted, though, John, that they were trying to alarm us. No, they haven't. They have. They said that the last time around, and it was last month when they said that they admitted to a committee that they were trying to make sure the public got the message, so they exaggerated yeah. the figures in order to scare them. That's what they said. No, they did not say that. Like, <laughs> well, I can find said, you the quote you, if you want.
2: Well, I, well, you find find me that that quote where they said they were trying to scare people by they're trying to they exaggerated the figures in order to scare people. I don't think that's what they said. They said they were trying to trying to get the message across that this is serious and you know it is serious and and of course that's why it's so much more uh damaging for them if they if they actually present figures which can be taken apart uh, in this way but even
1: theresa may has been having a go at the i mean she's the most you know boring and stable person in the parliament and even she's yep. saying that boris johnson's been using this data to, to basically mislead the public
2: Yes. Well, they shouldn't have used those those scenario graphs. I think that is absolutely right. They that's should a, have made that's their... a
1: great word. I like that scenario graph. I'm going to use that.
3: <laughs> I'm presenting
1: their... you now. They should have made clear, which they didn't do, that these scenarios were entirely made up based on a set of modelling, which was not in any way scientific. That's
2: you can't no. argue with
1: any of that. <laughs>
3: No,
2: they they were scientific and they were not made up, but they were scenarios. They were not forecasts and not pre- not uh, predictions. And they made that they did make that extremely clear.
1: Well, they were scientific um, in as much as I could go and stand in the lobby of the Science Museum and call myself a scientist. No, these were
2: drawn up by proper uh, scientists who, really? who were doing who were doing modelling. Well, they were certainly drawn with-
1: up by the men in the white coats. I don't know if they were scientists. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but no, but I've got to come back to the case. The case they actually made—the decisive uh, data—was the data on on the number of uh, coronavirus patients in hospitals uh, and and the steep increase uh, that was going on there. And the, and and they were drawing drawing conclusions from the rise in the number of cases uh, outside hospitals and saying that's going to end up in in hospital uh, after after a time delay. And that is, that is a serious case which persuaded the Prime Minister and actually persuaded uh, Rishi Sunak as well. Now, Rishi Sunak has been a sceptic so far. He has been extremely rigorous with uh, the scientists. He actually um, you know, went through the appendices of one of their reports uh, and, said, and pointed out some of, the, some of the flaws in their calculations. But this time, he had to accept that the case they were making was a strong one. And I think that, that does reflect...
1: Well, the case uh, might is- be strong, but it's not true. So therefore, all else doesn't matter. And that's the problem, isn't it?
2: No, the case is true. The point is, those scenarios um, shouldn't have been shown uh, because they 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 are based on out of date and um, contestable assumptions. Yeah. So they shouldn't have wrong. Used we call that. it wrong
1: uncontestable and out of date for that read wrong this is what i started my monologue with this morning that there are many different ways of saying they're wrong but they are wrong well
2: it depends by wrong i mean you can't prove
1: that they're wrong because well because it's in the well it's the future unless you've got a tardis and you can travel into the end of december and see what the figures actually are that's been part of the the problem. The whole point is these are not the figures that are going to occur because because
2: policy is going to be changed. And therefore, those are the figures that you're going to you're hoping to avoid. Um, yeah, so but again, it, it's, it's an, it's an unfulfillable
1: true. contract because you don't know yeah. whether the, the the figures have already fallen. I mean, what we do, do know, for example, now about the lockdown in March is that the, we believe and I think scientists now believe that the peak of the virus was actually before the lockdown. In the same <laughs> way that the peak of this second wave may well have been before Thursday, because already the Wait. R rate is flattening. And so we might find that it's already going to start reducing over the course of the next two weeks anyway. You know,
2: that, that is that is possible. I hope you're right because uh, I think that's uh, that's what we want to uh, we want to see.
1: Yeah, and and if that is the case, then surely that would mean, would it not, that it would have reduced no matter what the policy was. Yes, but we don't know that yet, Mike. That's that's the point. Well, I could I I could say that to you as a scenario, and it would be just as valid as anything that the Brothers Grimm came out with.
2: Oh, no, because you haven't you haven't done the maths.
1: You, well, it's exactly. But it shows you why the maths is worthless, because they've done the maths and their their prediction isn't any more true than mine. Well,
2: you don't know. Uh, you know. Yeah, but, anyway, I'm, not but getting,
1: I'm not getting paid bucket loads by the public purse either to do it, to get it no, wrong. But-
2: But you are trying to distract attention from the hard data of what's happening. Not at
1: all. No, I've always backed the hard data. I've always backed the hard data. In fact, the hard data has always been my friend. I've always been the person that says, look, this is the number of people currently in hospital. These are the number of infections. This is the number of people who are dying. As I said in the last week of October uh, that we have figures for 16th of October, week 42. According to the Office for National Statistics, the number of people dying from coronavirus is six percent. Of all the people dying that particular yeah. week, so that's a fact. Yeah. That's data that I've always spouted and I've always stood behind. Six percent, yeah. pretty low for closing down the entire economy.
2: Well, that may be right. I mean, it is above the uh, it's it's above the average for this time of year, and that's and significantly above the average.
1: It's not. Uh, actually. I mean, it's not, it's, not, it's not. It actually isn't. It is. No, the same well, numbers of people have been dying every week for the same period of the last five years, basically.
2: If, the, if you look at the excess deaths figures, um, you know, for a long time in the summer, we didn't have any extra deaths from to be we expect. Yeah. Uh, but, now, but now it has started to edge up. And, uh, you know, that does justify the government taking some yeah, action.
1: But that's the thing. Started to edge up. Anyway, John, listen, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Very much enjoyed it. Uh, and of course, as ever, uh, John agrees with me finally that these people have got it wrong. But he says you can't know they've got it wrong because it hasn't happened yet. Well, should we wait until they've got it wrong to say they've got it wrong? That's my scenario. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's have a listen to what President Trump said, first of all, last night. I've already decisively won many critical states, including massive victories in Florida, Iowa, Indiana, Ohio. To name just a few, we won these and many other victories despite historic... Election interference from big media, big money and big tech, as everybody saw. We won by historic numbers. And the pollsters got it knowingly wrong. They got it knowingly wrong. President Donald Trump last night still saying that he wants investigations done into all sorts of uh, dodgy dealings and dodgy voting uh, that he claims is going on uh, all over the country. Uh, Let me introduce you now to Jan Halper-Hayes, who is, of course, from Republicans overseas. My apologies, Jan. Uh, Very good morning to you.
3: Good morning to you.
1: I think this election has scrambled everybody's heads, to be honest. Uh, how are you seeing it? What are you thinking?
3: The rest of today is uh, more of the same. I don't think we'll have an answer until the earliest December 1st. Um, I understand some of the issues because the past three months, both the Democrats and the Republicans have been in different state court uh, courts arguing over different things and um Although Trump wants it to go to the Supreme Court, I'm not sure the Supreme Court wants to get involved in any political decisions. So sure. that's going to be very interesting to see.
1: Yes. I mean, from the legal perspective, we saw Rudolph Giuliani the other day pointing out that they were launching lawsuits in various different states. Will those lawsuits have to take place once the counts have all finished or how does that process work?
3: Oh, the lawsuits have already been filed. Um, and you don't have to wait until the counting is finished. For example, the in Nevada, what the question is, is a lot of people that don't live there, they're claiming they voted. And also a lot of dead people have apparently voted. Right. And so they're going to examine those ballots.
1: Yes. I mean, who knew that so many dead people would vote Democrat as well? It's astonishing that some dead I know. people didn't vote Republican. I know. What about, uh, what about when the courts will actually listen to the case uh, was more my thinking? You know, presumably a judge can't look at the case until uh, such time as all the votes have actually been counted.
3: Well, what will happen is it goes to the district court. The district court will make a decision. And if they don't like the answer, they will take it to the appellate court. And then if they don't like the appellate court's answer, they will try and get it to the Supreme Court. That is the process. They don't have to wait because, for example, um, they can let uh, the overseers in to start examining the ballots before they're even done um, with the last 500,000, 200,000. Mm. It doesn't matter.
1: Right. And as far as the, uh, uh, the sort of the, the holding patterns, I suppose, are looking, Arizona strangely. I mean, we did an overnight election show here on Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. Fox News declared Arizona had been won by Biden, uh, which upset the Trump camp very, very much, as you can imagine. Um, But it still seems to be in some doubt, Arizona. I don't quite understand how it takes this long.
3: Oh, because they still have um, in Maricopa County, which is the most populous county, they still have 230,000 ballots to count. And in the rest of Arizona, there's still over 200,000.
1: Right. So um, that count is likely not to finish today, or do you think it will finish today?
3: Uh, I would hope that it would finish today. Yeah. That is going to be really important because if Biden ends up losing Arizona, he's 11 electoral points down. Right. And um, it puts it again more in play. But uh, see, People are making an assumption that Biden has won. Yeah. But
1: but well, I'm not one of them, by the way.
3: Oh, good. Um, but one of the things that will happen is if so here, this is actually a situation that did happen. OK, in pencil in Philadelphia, they were not letting either Republicans or Democrats oversee the ballot counting, which we always have people that are in there. Mm. So the Republicans went to court. And the judge um, ruled in their favor that they are supposed to be allowed in to observe. The Democrats have filed a suit to negate what the judge said. It's just nuts. It's just, you know, it's just little.
1: I mean, one of the things that I think has come out, and I think maybe everyone on all sides could agree with, Uh, is that the system for voting in the United States in presidential elections probably needs to be completely reviewed and possibly overhauled and completely changed, because it seems crazy uh, in 2020 that you can have such chaos, doesn't it?
3: Well, the way our constitution works is that every state can decide on their practices, their laws, their rules, their procedures. Now, There is something called the election clause that does give Congress the power to either make new rules or alter some of the rules. And I don't understand why they didn't use that to begin with, because the the Democrat whip had proposed to Nancy Pelosi, let's just call the election for a month and we can we can have the funding we can give it to the states and that way everyone will have a chance to get their vote in but nancy thought that they were going to have a blue wave which was very disappointing for them because they didn't mm. and now her speakership is in uh, question.
1: Right. And it would certainly seem, even if Biden was to win, and as I say, I'm not one of those uh, that has written off Donald Trump because it, right, right off Donald Trump at your peril is what I always say. Um, but even if he was to win, he's going to be a lame duck president anyway. Um, and there are plenty of people uh, that I would suggest would say that he won't even last the entire four-year term and we will end up with Kamala Harris as the president.
3: Oh, yeah. That's what we're afraid of. And, and we're shocked... That people actually voted. So many people voted for Biden because they have rejected the woke culture. They've rejected the progressives. But she is the most liberal senator.
1: Yeah, and the Senate will be um, under the under the under control of the Republicans anyway, as far as we know, Jen, yes. Right? So you yes. won't be able to do very
3: much. Right. Exactly. And and that's why if Trump loses. We're really OK with it because um, we can then work on getting the House again and pushing some things through. But this means the Green New Deal, the getting, you know, Medicare for all, all of those progressive things will not, they won't even get up for a vote.
1: And what do you reckon are the chances, Jan, uh, of, a, of a sort of dead heat? Is that possible?
3: Uh, at this point, it isn't.
1: Right. Just because the numbers don't stack up that way.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because,
1: I mean, 270, effectively, is is two more than the other guy can get, isn't it? It is. Right. So, so, because, I mean, I've seen theories and I've seen, I mean, there's plenty of stuff out there if you want to read into, uh, you know, all sorts of different suggestions of what could happen. But I've seen a suggestion uh, that has 269, 269. I'm not quite sure how that would work.
3: Uh, What happens is then the electors. And so there are... Um, three electors in every state and those electors would end up voting to make the decision because they're part of the electoral college.
1: Okay interesting well listen Jan really interesting to talk to you very interesting information and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking for about another as you say two to three weeks longer about this result before it comes. Jan Halper-Hayes there from uh, Republicans overseas she says this could be dragged out until December. So we'll be in lockdown until they figure out what's going on in the United States of America. And I said this to Dan Wooten yesterday. You know, Donald Trump can still win this. Loads of people have written him off. They've written him off before. Let's not forget Um, all sorts of uh, shenanigans could be going on. There could be lawsuits. There could be court cases. There could be all manner of things. So don't count any chickens yet, please, in the
3: Democrat Party, because it's not over uh, until it's over. Mid-morning with Mike Graham, Cork
1: Radio. Now, let's have a look at the statistics that didn't stack up. On September the 21st, government scientists warned the UK was on course for up to 50,000 new daily cases by mid-October. On October the 7th, Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty showed MPs in the Northern Midlands a table suggesting 32% of transmission was taking place in pubs, cafes, and restaurants, when in fact it was around 5%. And October the 31st, slides presented at a Downing Street briefing showed a projection of deaths hitting 4,000 a day by the end of December. It turned out that was based on old data and was actually out of date the minute that the guys had uttered it in Downing Street. Let's talk to Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the Office of National Statistics, because maybe he can explain how they got it so wrong. Jamie, a very good morning to you. Morning Mike. Now um, I've been saying this as you know for a very long time that they've been misusing this data uh, that they've been projecting things which were unprojectable if you like using models which were not scientific in any way shape or form. How has statistical information got this bad?
4: Well I think one of the biggest travesties of of Covid not just the sad deaths that we have been seeing it's it's kind of been the use of data since Mm. the start of the pandemic. We We've had many mistakes that have been done. We, For example, back in the summer, we were still including in the death figures that were being published by the government, people who perhaps caught COVID many, many months earlier, and yeah. then, say, a tragic traffic accident, they would be included within the COVID death. Right. So that was an error that was fixed many, many months ago. But I think the biggest criticism for them at the moment is that a lot of these models that are being used, they're not actually publishing the underlying methodology in there. So I, I've worked in, in government in the past and, and worked for the Office for of National Statistics. And and generally, if you're going to be producing uh, statistical papers that people are going to be making big decisions on, for example, uh, labour market policy for, or, or anything like that, you would normally have to go through a, quite a rigorous process of getting it all quality assured. But more importantly... Putting all the data out there so that it can be scrutinized to assess if the decisions being made are the right ones. But what we've clearly been seeing in England and in Wales, I haven't been keeping a close eye on, on the Scottish uh, situation on Northern Ireland, but it's quite clear in England and Wales the models for these worst case scenarios they are quite scary but for some reason the the governments don't seem to want to tell us how they're
1: calculating the numbers well this is the thing i mean if i was a statistician uh, like any in any job where you're going to make a presentation as we've all done or many of us have done uh, to the bosses at some point or other the last thing you want is any as any kind of holes in the argument so what you don't want to do is overstretch the statistics. You don't want to overuse things or rely on things that you can't really stand up. You don't want to say things that can have a whole, great, great big hole punch through it or a coach and horses driven through it, as we would say. So, I, I mean, I've always found in my experience statisticians to be fairly conservative people with a small C. You know, they're not likely to make bold announcements and make sort of weird projections. But these guys seem to be doing that every single time.
4: Well, I think you bang on there. So in, in my career, when I've kind of been presenting stats and I try and take to Twitter each day to try and put a, an impartial, balanced view of what the statistics are showing mm. as clear as possible. And and that's exactly what you should do. Now, I did watch the um, the briefing last Saturday and I was quite critical off the back of it that not just considering the actual numbers themselves, the, the present, presentation was going into the living rooms of millions of people mm. on a Saturday night. Most people who probably don't very very rarely watch powerpoint presentation with statistics and even i was struggling to understand half of the information that was being presented and you even had um some of the i think um, valance was presenting the data and he even said himself that this is a complicated chart now i think the difficulty you've got there is if the public don't understand the data and then we subsequently hear that the data that was being presented was actually wrong Uh, you just start losing credibility and going back to what you were saying, I think, and then you start losing the public and then they don't believe anything you're saying.
1: Well, that's the trouble and that's where they've led themselves to, unfortunately. I mean, I was listening to David Davis this morning uh, talking as a politician uh, to Julia hartley Brewer on breakfast and he was saying that, you know, supposedly uh, government and scientific advisors are supposed to go and present a a series of, of scenarios, basically, to the Prime Minister, rather than a consensus. But what these guys have been doing is kind of getting a consensus and then presenting it to Boris Johnson, as though that's the only thing that could happen. And then if you tell the prime minister, well, 4000 people a day might die, he's going to say, Christ, we better do something then.
4: Well, of course, I'm, I'm quite sure that um, at the actual SAGE meetings, they're looking at a wide range of of different options and coming up with the consensus. I think one of my concerns would be that. Uh, ministers and, and politicians themselves, they, they, they're they not statisticians, so they're going to be taking the data that's presented to them and, and the advice that's been given to them. And if the presentations to the ministers and the prime minister is anywhere near as bad as the presentation that was done last Saturday, I kind of have some sympathy for Boris Johnson. He might not actually understand what's being presented to him himself. Now, uh, You'd hope that he's getting a third eye to kind of have a look at the data. For me, there's, there's some underlying flaws that we're seeing at the moment as well is that what we don't know is that we have seen hospital admissions go up. That's you know that, that's quite clear. But what we don't know is the the reason for the hospital admission. Was it specifically because of COVID, or did somebody happen to be admitted to hospital where COVID was happened to test positive as well? We also don't know. We we're seeing increasing deaths in Wales in recent weeks. But the hospital admissions are partly driven by that. But what we've also been told in Wales is that the deaths are being caused by people catching the, the the virus in hospital. So there's a different policy response if people are catching the virus in hospital and then dying to whether our people are catching it in the community and you want to have a lockdown. So so I've been trying to ask for more transparency with the data there. And, the, and then the, the stats watchdog, the Office for Statistics Regulation have come out yesterday being quite damning and it's, it's, it's quite a, a stretch for them to intervene in
1: this. And I think that was quite an important yeah.
4: moment. Well, I mean, one it, of the things
1: that, that I thought was reprehensible and I don't agree with the fact that they've just been using models which are worst case scenarios, therefore defensible in some way, because they have admitted that they exaggerated the figures in order to frighten people uh, into complying with what it was that the government wanted them to do. And at the bottom line for me is when they produced that graph about hospital uh, beds that were occupied, you know, the heat graph that was going all dark over to the right hand side, what they didn't do was include the first half of that graph, which was completely white because there were a load of hospitals in Britain that didn't have any COVID patients.
4: Well, yeah, that, that's true. And I've actually asked the the Welsh government recently, I wrote to them to ask, can you give me how many people were in hospital this time last year? Right. Because uh, we need to have a comparison. Is this any more worse than it is this time last year? And they wrote back to say they don't know how many people were in hospital <laughs> last right. year. Well, the answer is actually, actually they're retired. not, Jamie,
1: because we've seen figures, have we not, from 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 the last five years. And the average number of deaths is around about 5000 and something. And it's not much more than that. So at the moment in Wales,
4: we're seeing deaths pretty much in line with the average. It's slightly up in England and, and you might find that it's a bit higher in the north than there is in the south. It's quite clear that the data is showing that you probably need a differential response and, yeah. and the tier system may have actually been working because I've been tracking hospital admissions in the northwest and we've actually seen, ironically, in the four days before the national lockdown kicked in, the number of people going into hospital in the northwest was actually coming down. So yeah. it might be that the policy that was already in place was working and locking the whole of England down was a disproportionate response.
1: Well, indeed, because I was talking to John Renzel from The Independent uh, in the first hour this morning and I said to him that what we know now from the first outbreak was that the uh, infectious peak was probably before the lockdown happened towards the end of March. We've been told that, so I have no reason to disbelieve it. Now, I'm also uh, under the impression that it's possible that the second peak has already hit before this lockdown begins. So, effectively, uh, the lockdown will... Uh, bring the infection rate down, but it may have already been coming down.
4: Well, that that is true. And the difficulty you have now is when you do have a lockdown come in, it's then difficult to infer what would have happened if we didn't have a lockdown come into it. So Wales has gone a little bit earlier on this. So we had a fire break in Wales a couple of weeks back. And the percentage of people testing and coming back positive has kind of been going up and up and up. Now We have seen in the last few days that the percentage of tests coming back Positive, it stopped going up and it's kind of stalled. But it's reached kind of twenty percent for Wales overall, nearly, and and thirty percent in areas of Wales. But there will come a point where the graph can't continue going up and up and up anyway. So, mm. so it's difficult to infer exactly what would have happened if there wasn't, say, a firebreak in Wales.
1: And we had a caller from Bridgendon uh, in the first hour as well. who said that, as far as his his information is concerned, Merthyr Tydfil uh, has now got the highest rate of infection in the, in Britain, seven hundred per one hundred thousand or something. Is that your understanding?
4: Yep. Yeah, so Merthyr has continued to rise, rise and rise since the middle of um, September. It is in one of the worst situations in, in kind of not just Wales, but in the UK overall as well, which is concerning. I think for me that the data would suggest that the kind of what is driving the policy, is it the data or, or is it kind of politics? Because if the argument in Wales six weeks ago was Merthyr's rate of positivity was over 5 percent, so we should have restrictions uh, on Monday in Wales, restrictions are eased when the positivity rate is going to be around 30%. So what's changed in six weeks for the policy to be completely different? That That's what's kind of confusing to the public. Right. Uh, data seems to be used to justify one decision, but then data that shows a different thing, kind of a different decision is made,
1: for example. Well, I mean, the UK Statistical Authority says this. As a result of what's happened, there is potential to confuse the public and undermine confidence in the statistics. It is important that data is shared in a way that promotes transparency and clarity. It should be published in a clear and accessible form with appropriate explanations of context and sources. And that's exactly what they haven't been doing. And that is as big of a slap in the face to not only uh, Messrs. Valence and Witty, but to the government as well as I've ever seen well
4: yes yeah, i say it's unprecedented for the the statistics kind of watchdog to intervene in these situations and and even the transparency is, is one issue but i think another travesty has kind of been the impact of devolution and all of this because yeah. you can't kind of make comparisons between wales and england because wales will publish some data but england won't but then england will publish some data and wales don't so when you're trying to actually think who's getting this right is wales getting it right is england getting it right is scotland getting it right you can't actually make some of those comparisons as well and And if you ask for the data, and I've been repeatedly asking Public Health Wales, for example, on Twitter for data, you just don't get a response. It's it's, it's quite concerning, really.
1: And that's not really acceptable as far as I'm concerned, because the other thing that I've always said, and I said this about Mark Drakeford, you know, when he put uh, Wales into this firebreak lockdown, he did not reveal what the the sort of measure would be at the end of it as to whether it had been a success. So, I mean, how will you count it, whether it is a success? I mean, if Merthyr has got that many infections, I would say it's not a success.
4: Well, I said, um, I was talking about this a few weeks back, and I actually said um, before they announced the fire break that the difficulty in Wales is they announced it, and there was speculation it was going to be for two weeks, but it was going to be difficult to know if the fire break had any impact within the two week period. And then uh, Mark Drakeford and Vaughan Gethin, the health minister, then started coming out themselves saying, We won't know if this has worked when the end comes. And then you start thinking, Well, there can't be many times where you implement a policy of such importance and then you ended without knowing if it's been effective or not right. so i think that is a, another again another
1: concern with regards to how the, con- the kind of the pandemic and the use of data has been uh, been used yeah. And I mean, looking at things like test and trace, which we were told was going to be a sort of game changer. It was going to be the way uh, out of this particular pandemic crisis. We were going to be able to make sure that we knew all that we needed to know. I mean, that's been an unmitigated disaster. It hasn't really worked in any way, shape or form. We found out at the weekend that the, the, the risk level was set on the app to the wrong measurement. So people weren't actually getting contacted. Those who were getting contacted weren't necessarily doing what they were supposed to do. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of something that has actually done what it said on the tin.
4: Well, there's actually a big, I think, a fundamental flaw potentially with the, the whole test and trace system. So the Office of Financial Statistics actually go out and do a random tested survey. So they don't ask people to come forward if they've got symptoms. They're just randomly selecting households and asking them to take tests. Mm-hmm. And what that survey actually shows is that two thirds of people who are testing positive for COVID haven't got any symptoms. Right. So if you think then that they've got plenty of people going about the ordinary day business, no symptoms, who've got COVID, they're never going to be picked up in the test and trace system. Right. So it kind of identifies a clear flaw in there. Now, what we might see is this new thing that's going on in Liverpool at the moment, where they're asking people to come forward, regardless if they've got symptoms or not. And if that shows the exact same thing, then we quite clearly know that To get on top of this virus, just asking people to come forward with symptoms for a test and then asking them for isolation is not going to go far enough. And I think, again, that's another bit. None of that was communicated
1: last um, Saturday by um, Balance and Witty with regards to all of that. Mm. Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? Because in the end, you'll also have a problem with getting people who are perhaps those... Uh, who are only paid for going to work and not for being off, uh, basically well, who who won't want to get tested if they've got no symptoms, because if they do get tested and they test positive, they'll be told they have to isolate for two weeks and not work.
4: And, and again, that's another policy that's kind of come in that would discourage people to go in testing. So, yeah, you, you kind of bang on there.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, as far as... Um, the way forward here is concerned. You know, I think we can take it as read that the government have certainly lost the dressing room as far as the public is concerned on this data. So what should they do? I mean, if you were able to give advice right now to Boris Johnson and say to him, look, when Val- when Valance and Witty come w- waddling into your office tomorrow and start producing all these graphs, what should he say to them?
4: Well, I I think first thing is that it's it's quite clear that COVID has been causing some issues across the country and we've seen increasing admissions and it is sadly leading to deaths. Mm. What we don't know is how many of those deaths were specifically caused because of COVID and how many was it where somebody had a positive test. But So what you need to look at are the number of deaths over the norm for the time of year. And and that's disproportionately different in some parts of the country than others. So that's the most important thing that we need to track. And then look at the effectiveness of the the different tiers that were in England. And, and you need to kind of assess that, OK, have things worked in the north and are they kind of working in the northeast versus the northwest, et cetera, the different tiered approaches? Those are the kind of questions that need answering. But it seems to me that before they've even assessed if their tier system policy was working, they then went for the national lockdown approach before even assessing kind of the tiered system mm. approach. Right. I yeah, I that thought that as well. I
1: thought it was a bit too hasty, wasn't it?
4: well to the, the, the kind of say the data is showing that in the northeast we are seeing a fall in hospital admissions and hopefully that will then reduce to a, a fall in deaths because the tier system is quite restrictive i think the difficulty you have whether or not it's a national lockdown or a tiered system or a fire break like you've got in wales is that it's quite clear that for many members of the public they've got this lockdown fatigue now and even the measures that are coming in people are kind of not following them all to the letter of the rules etc mm. and if you've until you can get the public to be compliant and and kind of adhere to things, whatever policies you've got in place, it's going to be
1: difficult to reduce the infection rate down. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Very sensible conversation. Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the Office of National Statistics. I wish you were in charge of Downing Street's uh, data management because it would be an awful lot clearer and an awful lot more sensible and an awful lot less hysterical. Because I think that's what's been going on here. We've basically had hysterical scientists running about, waving their arms in the air, going, oh, oh, help, 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 do something, please do something anything doesn't matter what it is just do something for god's sake this is talk radio mid-morning with mike graham talk radio Now, let us, without further ado, check in with Lisa Francesca Nan, travel journalist, host of the big travel podcast, of course. The news uh, overnight came in that basically Germany and Denmark were put uh, on the no travel list or on the quarantine list, as it were, the the naughty list. But, of course, you can't really go anywhere anyway now uh, unless you can convince somebody that it is for business only. Lisa, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome.
5: Good afternoon,
1: Mike. Now, we've not spoken for a while, um, but it's gone from sort of, well, there's a couple of places you can still go to, uh, actually, there's now nowhere you can go.
5: Yeah, we're not allowed to go anywhere, let alone the pub or anything like that. We're not allowed to go anywhere on holiday. You could be fined up to £6,000. You can, however, go after if you're thinking of booking for Christmas or anything, you can go to the Canary Islands, you can go to Cuba, Gibraltar, although who would want to go to Gibraltar for a holiday? I have no idea. <laughs> it's OK for a weekend. I'm not recommending it for a week or anything more. Greece, Madeira, there are places you can go. But of course, right now we can't go anywhere. And we've been said, actually, that this is the case until December the 2nd. We don't really know at the moment. Um, but there is good news, like you said, is that the government, you remember last month they set up the Global Travel Task Force? yeah. Um, to look at the 14 day quarantine period uh, we're going to hear next week something I'm very excited about indeed to see whether that is being reduced they're talking about maybe reducing it to a week possibly even five days at the moment which can only be good news for those of us who want to travel and also for the uh, travel industry of yes
1: and how would that work then would there be sort of testing at either end of that
5: They're talking about testing at the moment. Do you remember we spoke a couple of weeks ago and they've actually started testing at Heathrow. It's going well by all accounts, but it's only to Hong Kong at the moment. So, I mean, people aren't meant to be traveling anyway. Hong Kong, I guess you can get away with a lot of business travel. So with either test, they're talking about the details at the moment, either test before you travel and definitely test when you come back after that five-day or possibly seven-day period. Right. That's to open travel up to a lot more people, but it's still got not going to open, open travel up significantly. But then the world isn't open, is it? So, you know, who knows what's happening?
1: Well, that's weird, isn't it? Because, I mean, one of the things we always heard, learned about uh, Scandinavia was that Scandinavia was held out as a sort of beacon of hope because, one, Sweden was meant to have handled things a lot better, uh, although there's been some questioning of that recently. But whenever people who were knocking Sweden uh, would talk about Sweden, they would say, but Denmark's actually done a lot better than Sweden. So, in fact, Sweden is is should not be held up as a beacon of hope. But now they're both on the list.
5: I I don't know. Probably some people will be like me and thinking, you know, could I get away with a cheeky weekend in Stockholm or in Berlin? And, of course, those are are now off the menu. This Denmark thing came over literally overnight. Grant Shapps tweeted this morning to say there's this new strain, apparently, of coronavirus coming from mink. Who knew there was such big mink farming? Yeah, I didn't. uh, uh, But they're apparently going to slaughter 17 million minks in the next week or so, which Mm. is just... Maybe you're going to find out, out that visitors. they all
1: voted for Joe Biden while you're at it. Nah, don't get
5: me started, Mike. <laughs> you know that you and I are on different sides of politics. I'm not. Listen,
1: I'm in the middle. I'm not on anybody's side. I'm a, a, a p- 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 purely impartial journalist in this. <laughs> No, of course, of course, I forgot about that. Of course, of course
5: yeah. absolutely. And, and me too, and me too. But yeah, so uh, now you can't go to Denmark, or you can't come back uh, to Denmark without uh, quarantining, uh, with or without the 17 million minks that right. they're, going to, uh, they're going to slaughter. But, you know, there are going to be people stuck in Denmark, and they had three hours' notice to come home. You know? mm. But I guess the thing about travelling at the moment is if you can wing it in any way... Um, you know, that, that you know that it, the one thing that is guaranteed is it's going to be subject to change.
1: Right. I mean, one of the things that I found very odd indeed was on Wednesday evening, um, the roads out of London were all absolutely chock-a-block with people who apparently, uh, as far as we know anecdotally, were driving out of London, which one can only assume was to go to their country uh, homes or their second homes to get out of London uh, before the lockdown hit on sort of Thursday morning, early hours of Thursday morning. One, I didn't realise there were so many people that had second homes. And second of all, um, I guess if they are in those second homes now, they're stuck there until December because you're not really supposed to travel, are you?
5: And also the second home people, you know, the people down in, the, the people who are receiving all those second home people. And no, I had no idea. There were so many people uh, where this ex- exodus came from. Yeah. But it could to be an exodus. But the people down in Cornwall and Devon and, Norfolk and all the places where these people are going to uh, can't be very happy either. I mean, I'm in I'm in Brighton and I went for a walk along the beach yesterday, right. and it was like a holiday down there. I mean, I'm not complaining. It's lovely. It's it's beautiful and it's sunny. But because people are coming out of the pubs and the cafes and the restaurants, they're all walking along the beach. So right. they're all those Londoners are going to be walking along the beach in Cornwall. I'm sure Cornwall's not going to be very happy either.
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, it, it would appear to me anyway at the moment, as I come in and out of work um, because I need to be here because so so. Um, so that we can do what we do you know the streets of London um, on my way in because the schools are still on uh, are just as busy as they were on Tuesday and Wednesday I mean to me aside from the fact that you can't go to a pub or a restaurant there's not much else that's different really
5: I do I I get that you know and I'm no lockdown vigilante and I will stick to the rules because the rules have been given and I, I do get that if you're in a closed a confined space in a bar, in a restaurant, you know, awful it is for the restaurant, bars and owner. And believe me, I'm a a massive fan of pubs and restaurants. I want to get out there as soon as possible. I can see how you're obviously less likely to catch a virus sitting in a pub I'm uh, sorry, more likely, to, you know, in an enclosed space. But people have been saying the same about airports and airplanes. And apparently, scientifically, although you have to see whether, who's commissioning the surveys, but a lot of the surveys say that it's actually really, really safe on a plane and really safe at an airport. And there are, by the way, flights that are still going. I've got friends that are flying back on the 16th from uh, from London to Malaga. And those yeah. are still going as the, at the moment. So there are places you can go to if you have those valid reasons. Yes. It's all a bit of a strange place at the moment, though, isn't it,
1: Mike? It really is, yeah. And I mean, we heard this week, I think, from Ryanair uh, and Michael O'Leary, their boss, that basically if you have booked with them, they will not give you a refund now. I, when I heard that, you know, I kind of understand their logic because, you know, they're a company, they've got pe- people to pay and all the rest of it. But I wasn't aware that they could do that because my understanding from, you know, the first set of rules was that they have to give you a refund if you ask for it. So, so where do people stand if they've got tickets with Ryanair?
5: Well, it is it is very much a grey legal area because this has never happened before and it's unprecedented. A, according to European law, we should be able to get a refund on our flights. I've done exactly the same this week. I've actually cancelled EasyJet flights and eventually I've got a voucher instead of asking for the refund. And EasyJet say you can get a refund, um, but please, you know, they, they want you to take a voucher because mm. we've come, we're in a very strange position now, Mike, that me, we actually might be keeping these companies afloat by not getting our money back and yeah. saying we'll have a, we'll have a voucher for future travel. Ridiculous as that sounds, you know, these massive companies might very well be in in trouble soon. So Michael O'Leary and and Ryanair, I mean, who knows how they will get away with it. I don't know how many people are going to take them to court, whether that will actually happen, who has the money to do that. Someone at some point might, you know, with some sort of Gina Miller of the, of the travel world might be <laughs> able to. I'm not saying that's going to be me. Well, uh, I, do you know, I mean,
1: if you can afford it, I would suggest that, that it's actually not a bad idea to leave the money in the company, because apart from anything else, it's a kind of mental note to yourself that you have got a holiday to take at some stage, you know, that you'll be able to go somewhere.
5: That's exactly what I've done this week. I had to make that decision and EasyJet said to me, you can have the money back, you'll get it back within a week. You know, whether I would or not, I don't know. But it was 700 quid and I'm thinking, actually, of course we could all do with that right now. But actually that's my saving towards the next holiday and also go some way to help keeping... Easy jet afloat, ridiculous, as, as that does yes.
1: sound. Although I once had a, a, a ridiculous situation where a friend of mine was skiing in, in sort of southern France and had a really bad accident. And I was, I was living in Scotland at the time, and I bought a ticket uh, on Buzz, I think it was, which was then still a valid airline, um, to, uh, to Lyon from uh, Stansted or something like that and then when i was about to fly out to see him uh, he turned out to get he was medevac back to britain to be taken to hospital here so that he could be fixed up here and he's all right now um anyway so i had to keep moving this ticket and i think i bought it for 40 quid but every time i moved it they charged me another 40 quid by the time i ended up going to paris on it um which was about two years later i'd spent about 300 quid on the ticket that cost me 40 so as long as they don't start doing that you'll be fine
5: well, they do start doing that. And the, the, the airlines were waiving the, uh, the change fee, because you, you know, you obviously have to pay to change the date. You have to pay, pay to change the name. You have to pay to change everything. Mm, and good. the airlines at one point were waiving those because of the virus and the unprecedented travel situation. And now, as far as I'm aware, none of them are wavering it at the moment. So you, that will happen. You know, you could get 50 quid uh, flight to, you know, easy flight that will sort of accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. So my advice is, and my, per- you know, I have to way of these options is take the voucher if you can afford to take the voucher and you can live you know without starving without getting that money back yeah. back is there take the voucher at the moment rather than keep changing flights as well which will do what you do and, and accumulate all that yeah, extra right. money.
1: And as far as the future goes, and I'm not asking you to have a crystal ball, but I know they were talking about making some kind of travel um, corridors, possibly. And two, very interestingly, for my own self, so sorry to be selfish, one to New York and the other to Dubai. Um, What do you think the likelihood of that is coming as we are up to Christmas?
5: It's really interesting, uh, the whole c- travel corridor situation. And like you said, it changes all the time. And, and I could say I don't have a clue, but I'm going to try and wing it. Okay. Um, I think the testing will be the issue and reducing the 14-day quarantine. I think that will be the thing that's coming up next. Right. Corridors, they they didn't release, you know, sometimes on a weekly basis, they say that somewhere is back on the uh, on the air corridor list. Greece and, and Portugal went back on and went back off, off again. Um, but, um, yeah, they haven't released any more. Uh, places this week from the corridor and said you can go there they might in a few weeks' time. Who knows? But I think probably what we've got to keep our eye on, the thing that I'm getting excited about, is this government uh, global travel task force that mm. they set up last month. There's going to be an announcement next week. So that's the one that I've got my eye on, the, uh, on at the moment. It doesn't really matter about travel corridors. If you only have to isolate, I say only, there's still lots of people that wouldn't be able to get away with another five days off work. But it will open it up a little bit, I think.
1: Well, I've said this to people. I mean, like my daughter wants to come for Christmas. And for, for her, if it was only a five-day quarantine instead of 14, it would really make a huge difference to her. And for people coming for Christmas, you know, you don't have to take, you know, an entire three-week period off to to, to actually go and visit your relatives. You can actually do maybe a week and a half or 10 days or something like that. But I must tell you, I mean, I went away uh, to the Isle of Wight last week and took a week off finally this year. And I must say, I didn't enjoy sitting on the old ferry, even though it's only 40 uh, minutes, with a mask on and be surrounded by other people wearing masks. And so I'm still not quite sure if I'm there yet to go on a plane go to an airport, wear a mask for two hours before you get on the plane, wear it on the plane. You know, I'm not sure I could do that.
5: Uh, you know what? I, I get back from Spain in the summer. We had to wear masks all the time walking down the street and the jury's still out on masks, isn't it? I mean, Spain's levels have been rising very highly and yeah. everyone wears masks in the street there. Um, you do get used to it and it depends what you want to do. You know, if you're desperate to go abroad and to see your family And to go out to a restaurant or to walk down the street as it is in in countries like Spain where you have to wear a mask, you do it. And I personally, it's all about personal risk assessment and personal wants and Mm. needs. I personally are happy to follow the laws to be able to. Oh, of course. Yeah,
1: listen, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. All I'm saying is is I'm not sure I'm prepared to, to put myself through that six hours of wearing a mask just to go on holiday.
5: Yeah, I, I do. I do get that. I do get that. But some people, for some people, holidays are important. Mike, I know for you and I, you know, I know from our conversations that they are pretty. Listen, important. my
1: whole life's a holiday, Lisa. I mean, you know, yeah. this is why I can handle it. Oh yeah,
5: of course, yeah it is.
1: <laughs> well, listen, great to talk to you. And when are you when are you hoping to go back to Spain if you can?
5: I've just given up. Like a lot of people, I thought about going for Christmas, and unfortunately, I've just given up. So my plan B is becoming operational is that bringing my family home from Spain mm. to uh, to here in Brighton for Christmas. So like a lot of people, we'll be making those decisions. You know, it's just something we've got to do. But we really want to see each other. You know, my parents are 81 and 77. You know, there's some risk involved. But, um, you know, we all sort of calculate our own risk. Yeah. And I know a lot of families around the UK will be doing the same in time for Christmas.
1: Absolutely right. Well, listen, Lisa, hopefully uh, we will see you soon. Uh, maybe uh, once the pubs and the restaurants reopen, you can take a trip up to London and we can have lunch or something like that. We shall see. Good to talk to you, Lisa Francesca Nan, who is, of course, a travel journalist, host of the Big Travel Podcast. I mean, many people that are listening to this will have, I suppose, been away on holiday. Um, whether or not you're going to be able to get what you want around Christmas time. I and mean, we've been told, of course, that all of this four-week lock. is in order to safeguard some form of normality over Christmas. But everybody stopped talking about that, haven't they? Everyone stopped talking about the kind of rule of six and the fact that you can't have too many mixed households and you won't have a a really decent Christmas because you'll have people knocking on the door to try and find out if you've got the wrong people in there. You know, it's all still very much up in the air, I would have to say. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Don't forget, if you haven't done it yet, you need to watch us on YouTube, watch us on Twitter, on Facebook as well. It's all live streaming. We will bring you the news first when it happens in America, when they start declaring winners. I'm not sure it's going to be today, but wait and see. We'll bring you the news first right here on Talk Radio. Mid-Morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, uh, about somebody else who was a rather controversial figure uh, in history. Thomas Cromwell. Tracy Borman is here, Tudor historian and author. Um, Tracy, I'm not going to ask you what your politics are, but uh, certainly you could say that Thomas Cromwell was uh, a bit Marmite, rather like Mr Trump, wasn't he?
6: He definitely was Marvite. Um, I personally love him, uh, but there are many people who feel exactly the opposite. Um, He was deeply controversial because, you know, that old saying about you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. Well, you can't change the Church of England without dissolving a few monasteries and making the king very rich and throwing the monks out on the street. That's really why he's had such a bad press.
1: And he also is a guy who makes that very, very sort of unusual statement true, which is that one man can change the course of history if he tries hard enough he really Cause, can because he really yeah. did
6: didn't he he absolutely did he transformed england uh, making it really uh, into the country it is today um, there are sort of remnants of um, kind of brexit you might say in the tudor period in yeah. that uh, it was first cromwell who persuaded henry to separate us from the rest of europe to create our own independent church i was actually asked to write about this um, very subject for a newspaper, was Henry VIII responsible for Brexit? Well, I would say probably it was more <laughs> Cromwell.
3: Right.
6: He was certainly responsible as well for doing away with Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Berlin, when she failed to give Henry the son that he so desired. Now, that does paint him in rather a black way, but as I said, I actually like him. He, was, uh, he came from nowhere. Uh, he wasn't a typical courtier he wasn't a duke or a noble he was just a blacksmith's son uh, and he rose to the very top through sheer hard work and ability so that's why I admire him
1: and he emerged sort of from Putney did he not in South London but he was thought to have come from Irish descent originally
6: Mm. The, the Cromwells did have Irish descent. Uh, they also had Nottinghamshire descent, but it was Putney that Cromwell uh, was born in. Now, today, if you're born in Putney and you go on to do well in politics, nobody would bat an eyelid. It's rather a nice part of London, but it definitely wasn't. Well, famously, if It's famously century.
1: now the only Labour gain in the last election, isn't it, I think? <laughs>
6: Well, be that as it it may, it certainly wasn't a nice place to live in the 15th century when Cromwell was born there and his father was notorious. I think he was in front of the courts about 43 times for various offences. So it was completely against the odds that his son Thomas would go on to this dazzling career in politics.
1: Yeah. And I mean, interestingly, notwithstanding that that most of the Irish people who came perhaps to Britain uh, back in the day would have been Catholic. He was a Protestant and a
6: committed Protestant, but he also spoke Italian, apparently. He was a real cosmopolitan gentleman because uh, he left home at a very early age. He might have been as young as 12 when he escaped the family home. Fled to France, became a mercenary, but then turned up in Italy and got his first big break. Uh, He got a job in a rich merchant's household, learned Italian, may have read and met um, Machiavelli. Um, He certainly met the likes of Michelangelo um, and the great artists of the Renaissance. So that gave him a real edge over his rivals in Henry VIII's court. The fact that he could speak several languages, he was well-travelled, well-read. And so even though he had been just a blacksmith's boy, he bettered himself to a quite astonishing degree. So that's quite surprising in a way as well, isn't it? Because you wouldn't think of
1: Tudor society as being particularly socially mobile, but clearly he was able to move up
6: in the ranks to become a sort of courtier. Absolutely. This was completely unusual. People didn't really leave their own village, let alone yeah. country. And yet Cromwell had travelled to France, the Netherlands, Italy, and that had given him a training like no other. This wasn't the age where people had a gap year and went travelling. You know, Cromwell really had a gap decade. Uh, he spent about 10 years in Italy, and the Netherlands, uh, learning his trade, picking up contacts. And he put that to very, very good use when he got back to London. And I'm told he was very popular with women of a certain age. I know that could be
1: something that you're not supposed to say these days, but, but he did seem to be very popular in that area.
6: <laughs> he did. He got on very well with women. I think really he was influenced by his childhood when his mother was dominant figure by the way he claimed that his mother was 52 when she gave birth to him uh, which is obviously quite astonishing wow. if true um, and uh, he had an elder sister who he was very close to and throughout his life he, t- he seemed to be drawn more to women uh, than to men although of course henry the eighth was a no- notable exception to that
1: yes indeed and he did have children didn't he
6: He did. He had a son, Gregory, and he had two daughters, Anne and Grace. And this is one of the things I love most about Cromwell. He invested as much attention and expense in the education of his daughters as he did in his son. Now, that's not surprising today, of course, but it was in the Tudor times when nobody bothered to educate girls because their only ambition really was to marry well. Right. And so at what
1: point did he sort of, um, I suppose, discover that he wanted what he did in the, you know, what what do you think motivated him from, you know, being a blacksmith son into becoming, you know, part of a very powerful kind of ruling class?
6: Well, in a shameless plug, that very question is at the heart of my new TV series. Excellent. <laughs> well, listen, Channel we're all about 5-ish. shame.
1: We're all about shameless plugs here. Please go ahead. <laughs>
6: Well, it's the rise and fall of Thomas Cromwell. It's going to be out next year. I've only just finished filming it. But yeah, just quite what drove him. That is such um, a mystery. Um, But he obviously wanted to better himself. He didn't want to just be a, a kind of trainee blacksmith in Putney following his father's footsteps. But I think it really helped that in the 1520s, so when he was back in England, he attracted the notice of Henry's then right hand man, Thomas Wolsey. Now, Wolsey was a very good man at spotting potential in others. He himself was lowly born. And so he and Cromwell really became like two peas in a pod. Mm. And it was Wolsey who introduced Cromwell to royal circles, to the court of Henry VIII. And really, there was no looking back.
1: Right. And unfortunately for him, um, he fell out of favour with the king, which, of course, in Mm. those days only had one ending, didn't it?
6: I'm afraid. So you might say that Wolsey <laughs> had a lucky escape because uh, he actually died when on his way to meet his reckoning at the Tower of right. London. Uh, but he only made it as far south as Leicester and he he died of natural causes. You could say that was a stroke of luck for poor old Wolsey. It sent out a real warning, though, to his successor Cromwell, who quickly replaced him in Henry's service, that, you know, don't mess up.
1: No, quite. Um, but in the end, Thomas Cromwell did mess up, didn't he?
6: Well, yeah, although it wasn't really of his own making, uh, he certainly. He didn't do himself any favours by arranging a marriage for Henry to Anne of Cleves. And that was an absolute disaster because famously Henry couldn't stand the sight of her when he first met her in 1540. But Cromwell did actually recover favour. And it was more thanks to some backstabbing amongst his fellow government uh, ministers that Cromwell fell from grace. Honestly, it's so resonant of today. There was a quote that it said that Westminster was full of great snarling in those days.
1: Yes, well, as you say, it doesn't the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? But but is I mean the Tudors for some reason, and I mean you'll be probably probably able to tell me they are. It is the most fascinating period of our history, I would think.
6: And I think it's because you couldn't make it up. You have a king who marries six times, the Virgin Queen. It's a very confident age, mm. the likes of Sir Walter Raleigh, William Shakespeare, uh, and it really was the beginning of a national identity, I think, for this country. So Little Wonder it's so popular, and I think really just because it is so dramatic.
1: Yes, I think absolutely right. So t- give us another shameless plug for your show, and who's, uh, do you have somebody portraying him in it, or is it just a sort of straight-on documentary?
6: It's, it's a documentary. Uh, we do have a little bit of recon, a bit um, of sort of historical interpretation mm. in that. Um, but it's really a documentary in which um, I chart the rise and fall of this extraordinary person. It's a two-parter, Channel 5, as I say, out next year and uh, precisely when, I don't know, but hopefully the first part of next year.
1: Brilliant. Great stuff. Well, Tracy, thank you very much indeed. Tracy Borman there, Tudor historian and author, got a new documentary out about Thomas Cromwell coming up uh, next year. And I mean, it's a great cartoon, actually. Actually in uh, a Pew cartoon, I think it is, in the mail today, uh, with a couple sitting on a couch going, um, there's nothing left to watch. We watched it all during the last lockdown. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. We had Bill Burrows on yesterday telling us about a couple of uh, things. But I was looking around last night and I was thinking, God, four weeks of this, I'm not sure I can handle it. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to start just um, making my own movies to watch or something. Who can say? Uh, this is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.